I had a teacher when I was young who said we face the same choice in life over and over again. It's a choice between the hard right and the easy wrong. And many of the public policy issues that I've been involved in over the years really represent that same choice between what's right, even though it's hard, and what's wrong, even though it seems easy to go along, to get along. But you know, if that little voice that we all can sometimes hear is saying, ah, this is not the right thing, it's always a mistake to ignore that little voice. And I try never to do so. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. He's the appropriate nomenclature, Mr. Vice President. I want to make sure that I, I say it correctly. Well, the correct way is your adequacy. Your adequacy. I'm kidding. You. <laughs> Al is fine if you're comfortable with that. Okay. Well, Al, I'm extremely grateful for you doing this. I will tell you that generally speaking, I have a rule where I try and consume every piece of content that my guest has ever done. And you and Ariana Huffington are the first times where I feel like I've genuinely met my match. <laughs> well, I've never been in the same category with Ariana. It's, I'm complimented. Thank you. <laughs> I like to start these things by giving a bit of a bio on behalf of my guests. So if you'll allow me, I'd love to just go through a quick little bio, tell me if I screw anything up, and then I'd love to just jump into a whole sure. bunch of questions, if that's okay. All right. You went to Harvard, then you went into the U.S. Army, served in Vietnam, then you went to law school at Vanderbilt, briefly as a stint in the Nashville, Tennessean as an investigative reporter. At the age of 28, become the U.S. representative from Tennessee, then you became the senator of Tennessee. You served on the Commerce, Governmental Affairs, and Armed Services Committee. In January 20th of 93, you were sworn in as the 45th Vice President of the United States and then re-elected in 96. A few other modest accomplishments along the way. In 1990, you were the founding member of the first Interparliamentary Conference on the Global Environment. In 92, the book Earth in Balance became a New York Times bestseller. 2005, a Webby Award. 2006, Inconvenient Truth was released. 2007, Nobel Peace Prize winner, jointly with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And then 2009, just because you wanted one more accolade, you won a Grammy Award for the best spoken award album for Inconvenient Truth. How did I do there? Uh, well... You know, it's fine. I wasn't briefly at the Tennessee, and I worked full-time there for five years as a journalist. And when I came back from Vietnam, I went to the Vanderbilt Graduate School of Religion for a year while I was working at the newspaper and continued to work at the newspaper when I went to law school. And I've written quite a few other books. Another New York Times number one bestseller was The Assault on Reason. I won't go through the list, but uh, I put a lot into them and, and uh, proudly became a partner at Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers, and co-founded Generation Investment Management almost 19 years ago and serve as a chairman of Generation. And Generation went into a strategic alliance with Kleiner Perkins, and it was for that reason that I became a partner at uh, Kleiner Perkins. Worked on the Climate Reality Project, which is an NGO that trains tens of thousands of people all around the world as climate activists and the Climate Trace Coalition, which tracks real-time atmospheric carbon emissions. And am on the board of Apple, where I enjoy serving a great deal. I will say it is unbelievable seeing the list of accomplishments. Do you have one that you are most proud of? Four children and 10 grandchildren. It's incredible, congratulations. I've heard you say in the past that the greatest leader of my country is Abraham Lincoln. Could you expand on that? 
Well, sure. Lincoln was a great leader of the entire world. I mean, he inspired people in nations uh, throughout the world to seek out liberty and representative democracy, self-governance. And he saved our last best hope for humankind. There's so much you could say about him, but he was, in my opinion, and I'm hardly alone in this opinion, the greatest of our presidents and the, the savior of, of America. When you were growing up, I'm curious, what was conversation like for you at the dinner table? <laughs> well, it's a great question, Jubin. I'm not sure anybody's asked me that before, but it really is quite a, a significant question uh, to me because that conversation was uh, really rich and intense. My mother was one of the first women to graduate from Vanderbilt Law School back in the 1930s. She had come from a poor family in West Tennessee. My father came from a poor family in Middle Tennessee, Eastern Middle Tennessee. She and my father both took the Tennessee bar exam on the same day. They would never tell my sister and me which one scored higher. Uh, but my mother was, uh, when she graduated from law school and passed the bar, there was, it was in an era when no law firms in Nashville would hire women. So she went out to Texarkana and uh, practiced law there. And my father uh, chased her out there. And he uh, was a superintendent of schools and then uh, secretary of labor for the state of Tennessee and then ran for Congress back in 1938, 10 years before I was born. I go through that uh, history to set up my answer to your actual question, which is with two parents like uh, the two I had, the conversation at the dinner table was really fascinating to me and my sister. And both of my parents were <laughs> very active in trying to shape my education and understanding. And I'm very grateful for that. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I remember my mother reading to my sister and me for a time at the dinner table for a period of weeks from Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. But every topic that was of interest in the news, my mother and father would uh, engage us in conversation about uh, whatever was on their minds and a lot was on their minds. Silent Spring she would read the book to you at the dinner table? Yeah, actually, uh, excerpts from it. That was the only time I remember her reading aloud from a book at the dinner table, but it really made an impression on her and on me and my sister. I was 13 at the time, but it stood out in my experience. You know, my upbringing was a little bit unusual because I had a dinner table in a hotel in Washington, D.C., where my father was working as a congressman. But every summer and every Christmas and every spring vacation uh, were on the family farm in Carthage, Tennessee. And I worked on the farm every summer of my young life. I didn't really understand the difference between fun and work uh, in those years. I absolutely loved it. I learned from my father in particular about soil erosion and about the conservation and environmental lessons that were so important to uh, my parents' generation who had witnessed the Dust Bowl and the soil erosion that uh, destroyed so many farms. And I remember him teaching me so many lessons about the farm, how to stop a gully before it gets started good, where to find the richest and most fertile soil. And to digress a moment, I remember that lesson. I was probably five years old and the richest soil was black and moist. And I'm embarrassed it took me more than 50 years to really understand why it was black. That's the carbon. That's the organic carbon uh, that makes the soil black. And it was moist because that organic carbon supports the rich diversity of life, including the mycorrhizal fungal networks that really hold the soil in place, keep water, keep it moist. And later on, here we are, so many decades later, uh, talking about solutions to the climate crisis. And one of them is to put more organic carbon into the soil to make it black again and to make it more fertile and also to 
pull the CO2 out of the sky as much as possible. And soil recarbonization is one of the best ways to do that. But in any case, I had uh, lessons at the dinner table in Tennessee and lessons at the dinner table in Washington, D.C. And I am so grateful (laughs) for those experiences. Did you look up to your dad growing up? Very much so. Very much so. Looked up to my mother, too. Would you say you're more like one or the other? I think the obvious answer would be that you followed in your father's footsteps in many ways. But I wonder what what you think. Well, you know, uh, my mother sublimated her professional career into my father's political career. She was very much a part of it. I wouldn't take your bait and say no, I'm more like my father than my mother. I'm, they were both heroes to me, really and truly. I don't use the word lightly. They stood for justice and honor and a better world. And they were part of the New Deal awakening among young uh, political figures back in the 30s. And my father was youth chairman for Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. Wow. And his uh, role model was Cordell Hull, who uh, is not as well known today as he was in those decades. He served as Secretary of State for longer than anyone in American history. He was known as the father of the United Nations and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1945, lived here in Carthage, Tennessee, population 2,000, and uh, was also uh, the originator of what used to be called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. It's the WTO today, uh, forms of reciprocal free trade, and he emphasized the reciprocal nature of it. But my father and mother uh, really idolized him, and he had floated logs down the Cumberland River with my paternal grandfather when they were both boys, and that gave my father an opportunity to uh, seek him out as a mentor in the same little town here when he was growing up. So I did think, like many boys do, that I might want to do what my father did, but I kind of had a love-hate relationship with politics for a while because he was defeated in his third re-election campaign, his fourth campaign for the Senate. He was in the House of Representatives for 10 years before I was born, was elected to the Senate when I was four years old, and he was an early opponent of the Vietnam War, and he was opposed to mandating prayer in schools and all of the hot-button issues that today are even more prominent. They were first launched in the new form by the Nixon-Agnew White House in 1970. I found that to be a somewhat disheartening experience. And having seen Nixon firsthand as president and having been disillusioned by President Lyndon Johnson's conduct of the Vietnam War, which uh, he did a lot of good things, but he lied to the American people. And those lies served as the basis of America's launching of the Vietnam War, echoed later on by the lies used to justify the second war in Iraq. In any case, I became put off by politics and thought it would be the last thing that I ever did. Yet when I was a young boy, I was sort of heading in that direction, I thought. And then later on, during my five years at the main newspaper in Nashville, I became an investigative journalist working under a a wonderful mentor named John Sigenthaler, who was editor of that paper and a legendary investigative reporter. He trained me as an investigator and I wrote a bunch of stories that resulted in indictments and people leaving office and so forth. And that's when I decided to go to law school. I was finishing my second year in law school, working still at nights at the newspaper when The congressman from Carthage, Tennessee, the home district, uh, surprisingly announced a decision to retire. And I decided on the spot that I was going to run for Congress. I had not really been aiming at that profession for many years, but I jumped into it and I found it to be enormously rewarding and satisfying. I could almost 
hear the battle hymn of the Republic being hummed in the background. I was inspired by it myself. And there are not a few women and men in American politics who are inspired that way by what our founders created and uh, inspired by the majesty of a system that gives people in every walk of life an equal opportunity to speak their mind and influence the way in which we govern ourselves. I just absolutely loved that. I watched the political system in America change during the years when I was in it. Television took over from newspapers. Social media is in the process of taking over from over-the-air television anyway. A video is still a major component of the online content, of course. But those changes were accompanied by a rise in the influence of big money in politics and uh, Supreme Court decisions like the one that allows unlimited dark money that can be donated to politicians with an implicit quid pro quo that they'll do what the donor wants them to do. They have really done a lot of damage to politics. But when I entered politics, it wasn't yet that way, but I did mm -hmm. watch it change over time. Al, at Kleiner Perkins, we're in the underdog business. That's my favorite way of describing the work that we do. And you had a firsthand seat at it and were a large contributor to the work that we do and did. I wonder, you strike me as in some ways the ultimate underdog fighting the fight incessantly. Does it get tiring Honestly, it strikes me that when I listen to the speeches that you give, I watch the COP27 speech, your energy and passion to fight this fight, not dissimilar from the odds that are, you know, against all odds, not too dissimilar from what our entrepreneurs face. It's unbelievable the stamina and the rigor with which you attack over and over through decades. Are you tired? No, when you have work to do, that uh, allows you to feel that you're justified in pouring every ounce of energy you have into it. That's such a privilege. And when you're fighting a so-called good fight where justice is involved, I had a teacher when I was young who said we face the same choice in life over and over again. It's a choice between the hard right and the easy wrong. And many of the public policy issues that I've been involved in over the years really represent that same choice between what's right, even though it's hard, and what's wrong, even though it seems easy to go along, to get along. But you know, if that little voice that we all can sometimes hear is saying, ah, this is not the right thing, it's always a mistake <laughs> to ignore that little voice. And I try never to do so. But in the public policy work that I continue to do, uh, principally on climate, when I get involved in these fights, it's not draining. It gives me energy, really. Maybe I press my own buttons. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, when I get involved in the work, uh, I, I just uh, get inside the uh, dynamic of the issue, and it gives me energy. And I do feel passionate about uh, choosing the right choice instead of the easy, wrong choice to go along with the lobbyists, get the big money and whatnot. You know, throughout history, I mean, democracies have been pretty brief in duration. And yet when they've existed and when they've had integrity, the people flourish and civilization flourishes. And the United States of America has played a unique role in empowering people in nations around the world who are lucky enough to be able to establish self-governance to make their lives better and to do right by their children and grandchildren. That's a wonderful privilege when it's there. And if something is threatening that, then, uh, you know, it gives me great joy to just jump into the battle and try to make sure the right outcome is reached. I'm curious, earlier you said, and I might be paraphrasing, but you didn't really know the difference between work and play. I do wonder, you characterize this as work, but to me, sometimes it feels like fun. It does feel like play. Can you draw a distinction between those two? Do you feel like it's play or do you feel like it's work? I wonder what the balance is in the intersection for you as you think about fighting it in this way. Well, it's a very, very interesting question. Let me separate the 
first reference I made to it uh, from the thoughtful question you're asking here. When I said I didn't know the difference between uh, work and fun, I was thinking of the days when I would, uh, as a young boy, be out with the men. And in those days, it was men working out in the fields. On my farm today, there are actually more women than, <laughs> than men. But in those days, uh, when the men were out throwing hay bales on the wagon behind the tractor and I could run along with them and help out, <laughs> I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I did learn the difference between work and fun <laughs> later, later on <laughs> when I got to be a teenager and I had some other uh, pulls in my life. But now to your thoughtful question, if you're doing what you deeply believe is the right thing, then that can give you a sense of joy. I would differentiate that from play, but enjoying the activities that are called work, there are a lot of people who really enjoy what they do. And it's such a privilege to be able to, I'm sure, I'll, and let me ask you, Juven, I bet you enjoy doing this uh, podcast. I absolutely love it. And can I tell you, my signal for joy is presence. I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but my signal for joy is when I have nothing else on my mind, but exactly the thing in front of me. Do you feel that way? Often when I'm uh, all wrapped up in a passionate argument or a struggle, uh, then, you know, other things don't, <laughs> don't intrude. Sure. That's correct. And that's something that play can also give you. Back when I used to snow ski quite a lot, I always told people I, I was so bad at it, I was consolidating my grip on the intermediate category. It took my full attention to get from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain without breaking any bones. And when I did so, I would uh, often realize at the end of a long run, I wasn't really thinking about anything else at all except getting to the bottom of the mountain. You know, enjoyable work that you feel passionate in pursuing has that quality as well. I'm curious, does that resonate with you, whether in your own investment firm or when you were at Kleiner Perkins, seeing people embrace what is such a hard endeavor in company building and harness that into some version of joy where there is no peak. It's really the process of climbing that they need to come to love and embrace. Maybe I'm over romanticizing it, but was there something there for you watching that? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. But I've had other work experiences where it did not have that feeling. One of the things I did when I first left the White House involuntarily in uh, January uh, of uh, 2001, I went to work. I was offered a position with an asset management firm in Los Angeles and very nice people. And I learned a lot and I'm very grateful for the learning experience. But the main focus was primarily on making money. And there was not frequently any larger purpose than that. And I didn't find that very satisfying. And one of the reasons why I co-founded my own asset management firm, Generation Investment Management, with David Blood, who had been the CEO of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and four other partners back almost 19 years ago, was in order to infuse that work I'd learned how to do with a commitment to do it in a way that made the world a better place, not just rhetorically, but to seek out businesses we could invest in that would help reduce the emissions that are causing the climate crisis, that would promote financial inclusion and help lower income families and so forth. And to this day, Juven, I think that all this, they talk about ESG and that label is really one that's fraught with confusion for many people. But if you think about all of the companies that are now investing according to a model that is designed to make the world a better place and to clean up the environment, for example, one of the things you find is that the smartest and most motivated, excellent young women and men coming out of universities and grad schools, they disproportionately gravitate 
toward firms that share their values because they want to feel that they're not just making money. They want to make money, of course, but they want to be able to tell their families and their friends, their posses, their loved ones, that they're about more than just making money, that what they're doing has a tangible and beneficial effect on the world. And that's business at its very best. And when I'm involved with companies that we've invested in, either at Generation or at Kleiner Perkins, and those companies are pursuing a grail <laughs> that is very meaningful and can make the world a better place, I often really feel a sense of joy in doing everything I can to help them. And you know, there's so many examples of highly successful businesses that began with a commitment of the heart. A business plan that might never have gotten off the ground on its own financial terms, but got off the ground because the founder or founders had a vision that was rooted in their heart space where they wanted to figure out how to use business to make the world a better place. I love that. That's what we do at Generation. And when I became a partner at Kleiner Perkins, it was at the time when Kleiner Perkins was launching its effort to try to find better technologies to help solve the climate crisis. And by the way, even though that period of time is considered by so-called financial experts not the most lucrative period in the history of Kleiner Perkins, if you go back and look at that history and you trace the companies that were started during those years, wow, it made an enormous difference. The capitalization amounts and the times to exit were a little bit different as it turned out from what early stage investors were used to. But if you track it over time, it had a huge impact on the emergence of the modern solar industry, the modern wind industry, battery industry, electric vehicle industry. It really made a huge difference. And at Generation, we've been doing that for 18, almost 19 years now, very successfully also. I'm very proud of the work we have been able to accomplish and what, we're, what we have underway right now. And just to defend the badge on the front of my jersey, Kleiner Perkins, the, I'll put in air quotes, dark days of the financial returns that, as you say, the pundits have pontificated on plenty, still 3x. It's all relative, absolutely. <laughs> no. And by the way, no. some of those companies from that period haven't even blossomed haven't yet. Haven't even fully blossomed yet. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, it was very successful financially, but in the VC space, it's all relative. <laughs> so the bar is high for us. That's right. The bar is high that's for right. us. That's right. And we're clearing it handily once again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Al, hearkening back to a point that you made earlier around a mission that entrepreneurs can have that becomes this incredible gravitational force for others to join that mission, especially in the next generation of employees. One of my partners asked me years ago what my shortlist of our favorite investments are. And the first one that came to mind, and I try not to talk our own book, but forgive me for a second, is a company that we're both invested in called Watershed. And he asked me why. And I said, for no other reason other than I have never seen so much great talent come to a place that we don't deserve. And I say don't deserve in the sense that we were a tiny company. Watershed was tiny. And it was out kicking its coverage in a way that I've never seen before. And that level, that density of talent moving towards one mission or goal was so hard to ignore. I think there's something special to your point about when a company becomes a mission that then becomes a calling. You're then getting people that you're otherwise not qualified to get and getting the most out of them. I think there's really something special there. Yeah, no question about it. I love Watershed. Uh, one of the co-founders was a boy when I first met him, 13 years old. He went through my climate training and then went on to give thousands of presentations. I spoke at his graduation at Princeton years later. And then after working for other companies, he and his uh, 
co-founders launched Watershed. And no, I, I agree with you. But when you have a mission that is compelling, it draws people toward that mission for sure. There's no, no question about that. And, you know, when I was writing my first book, you mentioned it, Earth in the Balance, I began that book with a quotation from an obscure, relatively obscure uh, Scottish mountain climber a hundred years ago. And he, he said, uh, there is one hidden truth about human endeavors, the ignorance of which condemns countless ventures to failure. And the truth is this, the moment one commits oneself, providence moves also. And you don't have to define providence as the deity, as the creator, but I think it's certainly demonstrably true that when the founder of a company or the leader of a political entity or a nation makes a commitment of the heart and soul, it causes a shift and people who understand and notice are drawn toward that to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the commitment, depending on the mission. But this mission of solving the climate crisis is drawing people to it in business, in governance, in NGOs, in every country. And it is the challenge of our time because we've got to, we've got to succeed. I wonder what your perspective is on this notion of storytelling. You're one of the best storytellers I've ever seen in my life. And it feels to me that when movements are created, the movements that you've created, I think companies can be distilled down to movements. It feels like an act of storytelling where inspiration is drawn from stories. Do you agree with that? And if so, do you practice your storytelling? Where does that come from? It's unbelievable. And the way that you're able to repeat it and feel like it's the first time you've ever told the story, it's really unbelievable. So maybe it's more commentary than a question that I'd love your perspective on. Well, thank you for your kind words. I was fortunate to spend those five years at the Nashville, Tennessee, and overall I spent seven years in journalism and I, I learned the craft of writing stories. Of course, all of us who went through school uh, had to learn something about that, but doing it professionally for seven years uh, was certainly of great benefit to me. And of course, explaining the importance of storytelling in human affairs is now a major cottage industry with books about it all over the place. But yes, I practice. And I'll give you two examples. When I was in the Congress of the House and Senate, I used to have what I called open meetings. People call them town hall meetings commonly now. But when I was in the House of Representatives, I did an average of five every single week. And by repeating stories over and over again to different audiences and taking on board their reaction, you learn how to connect more easily and how to recognize whatever obstacles your listener might encounter in fully understanding what you're trying to convey. Similarly, when I started giving my slideshow on the climate crisis, I gave it thousands of times before anyone ever said, hey, you ought to make that into a movie, which I, by the way, didn't think was a good idea. That's how little I knew. I had practiced it, if you will, thousands of times. I still do. I give slideshows uh, regularly and introduce new material. My staff here in Tennessee is, I'm so <laughs> grateful to be working with uh, some amazing women and men here who uh, scour the media and the internet every single day. I start every day with a full up review of everything of significance that they can find in the technologies relevant to the climate crisis, the extreme events that have unfortunately become much more common and more severe, the politics of it. And then I integrate those new understandings into a revised version of my slideshow. I've been working on two of them today. I've got a training uh, coming up online just in a few weeks for thousands of people on how to take quick advantage of the 
climate provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, the biggest climate legislation any nation has ever passed that uh, President Biden and the Congress passed, and the uh, climate provisions of the infrastructure bill. And I will practice that presentation many times before I uh, decide that it's uh, fit for public viewing. When you give a presentation that deep down you thought, you know, I'm tinkering with this thing, it didn't go well. You go behind stage, deep down in your heart, you have that knot in your stomach. My message did not resonate today. And you've been sharing messages for most of your career. I wonder, do you ever get nervous that there aren't the people that you need to give you the appropriate feedback loops to say, you know what, Al, that one sucked today. Well, because, you know, at some point you're the vice president. You're, it's hard to give you that feedback. Similar to our CEOs and our entrepreneurs, they constantly obsess over this idea of, listen, my self-awareness only goes so far. Ultimately, I need feedback loops. And I, I wonder if that's something that you're aware of or think about. Oh, sure. A- absolutely. Now, you know, I've been doing this quite a long time. And so I, I have developed uh, a way of sensing how the audience is receiving my message. Uh, I, I, I don't read my speeches. I'm looking at the audience while I'm speaking or while I'm giving the slideshow. And it's hardly unique to me, but I've learned over the years to recognize whether it's connecting or not. So there's an instant feedback loop. But to answer the question you've asked, Yes, I do have people who are not reticent in the least to say that didn't work. You ought to consider changing that. You should ought to think about phrasing this in a different way. Absolutely. And I treasure that <laughs> feedback and act upon it. And did you feel comfortable doing that yourself? Meaning you and President Clinton had an incredible partnership, notorious for one of the best partnerships ever. Did you feel comfortable going up to him and saying, you know what? I don't agree with this, or that didn't sound very good. I I just wonder, are you ever afraid? I doubt it, but I just, (laughs) you know, does that ever cross your mind to pause before interjecting on that feedback? I've learned not to hesitate. And now, you know, it depends on who, who I'm giving advice to for sure and how well I know them. But Bill Clinton and I became as close as brothers, I would say, for most all the time that we served together. And by the way, I do think that I was able to give him very useful feedback, even of the negative variety. And it was not uncommon for staff members or cabinet members who felt strongly about getting something in his ear, but they were a little scared to do it themselves to come to me and ask me to to do it. But uh, Bill Clinton and I became so close that he would appreciate hearing it from me. And often I would take an approach that was kind of joking about it. You know, he'd say something and I'd say, yeah, that's it. Torque it up a little bit. Really, you know, hit hit that harder. Hit that point harder. People are going to really appreciate hearing (laughs) you say that. And he'd laugh, you know. And so there, there are different ways to do it. Are there any examples that come to mind? Anything that's, you know, okay for the public? Any, anything that comes to mind where you kind of poke in a gentle way? Just, hey, I don't know if that's the right way of doing it. Well, you know, <laughs> there'd be some times where somebody would, would have said or done something that made him mad and naturally, you know, that would come out and I'd say, yeah, hit it harder, you know, and... <laughs> I'm the same way. We're all the same way. I remember one time, uh, this is slightly different, but when he was preparing the State of the Union address for, I guess it would have been in um, 1996, in January, the government had shut down because Newt Gingrich and his group had taken over the majority in the House of Representatives in the 94 elections, and he... (laughs) shut the government down and didn't work well for him. And in the same time period, there was that horrible tragedy in Oklahoma City, which you may remember when an American uh, terrorist, Timothy McVeigh, made a big truck bomb with uh, fertilizer ingredients and blew up the federal building. You remember that? You're too young to remember it, maybe, but... I know it. Anyway, his staff wanted to put the torchbearers of the Olympic 
torch in the audience next to the first lady. And I said, ah, you know, I think we can do better than that. And I found a um, heroic federal employee who had been in that building that had blown up and he was injured, but in the aftermath acted heroically in rescuing his fellows. It gave an opportunity to talk about terrorism and to defend our federal employees. And I remember sitting uh, behind uh, the president in the vice president's chair and Newt Gingrich was to my left as the speaker. When he got to that section of the speech and praised this heroic federal employee, he stood up and we clapped. Newt and I both stood up and I, I said, Newt? He said, yeah. I said, wait for it. And we sat back down and then President Clinton, uh, as we had planned, said, tragically, that was not the only time that so-and-so was forced out of his government office. Uh, he moved to temporary quarters and when the government was shut down, he was forced out of his office again uh, and let us pledge to the American people, we will never shut down their government ever again. And <laughs> half the chamber stood and applauded and I looked over at Newton and said, I told you. <laughs> And uh, anyway, uh, there were some uh, interesting times in the White House, which I enjoyed a great deal. After the 92 election, can you talk about what happened in Little Rock with the agreement that you and President Clinton made? I ask because we're obviously obsessed with the construction and success of teams and the way teams work together. Could you describe that time in 92 for the audience and what you and President Clinton agreed to? Yeah, well, we had agreed uh, on some important principles before I ever joined the ticket. I was surprised when he asked me to run as his vice president because we were from adjoining states and we were from the same part of the ideological spectrum, same age, basically. And traditionally, the requirement for political balance in these presidential, vice presidential tickets had ruled. And so I, I was genuinely surprised. But we liked one another. We got along really well. And we reached an agreement before the election was over with. But during those days in Little Rock, when we were putting together the cabinet and the White House staff and the agenda and all of that, it was an honor for me to be invited by him to play such an integral partnership role with him. I used an analogy with him back during those days, and it's a little bit geeky as I'm vulnerable to geeky analogies, but I had, as a member of the United States Senate, worked out an agreement with the Central Intelligence Agency to um, allow a climate scientists to use data that had been collected by top secret systems like satellites, like the, it was secret then, the array of hydrophones on the ocean floor that they used to listen to submarines from potentially hostile nations. And working out that agreement with the CIA, Bob Gates later became defense secretary. He was under the President George H.W. Bush administration was running the CIA, man of great integrity, and he and I were able to work out an agreement where 100 climate scientists went into the CIA, got clearance for top secret, but we had to find a way to make absolutely certain that information important to the national security, the release of which would cause a threat to the nation, was always protected without question. And once we buttoned that down and developed a reliable system that he and I both had confidence in, then the information flowed readily. But you had to take care of that. So I use that as an analogy in my conversations with Bill Clinton, that the first and most important principle of our confidential communication was that he would never, ever, have to worry in the least bit about something he told me in confidence ever coming out or being shared with anyone. Once that principle was established, then the free sharing of everything became routine. So I think trust 
is absolutely central to the building of, of successful teams. There's much more besides, but I would start with that. Can you indulge me on any other key tenets or principles that you both agreed on? You said it was before 92, and as he invited you to be on the ticket with him, what other things did you were really important for you, and I wonder, important for him, and maybe areas of compromise in that partnership? Because, again, I go back to, it is known as one of the greatest partnerships that we've ever seen, and it strikes me as something that I'd love to explore. Well, let me first of all give due credit um, to the late Walter Mondale, who, in his partnership with former President Jimmy Carter, really defined the modern role of the vice president. Hasn't always been followed since then, but Fritz Mondale deserves the primary credit for the model that I followed as vice president. But thank you for describing it as you did. We agreed, uh, Bill Clinton and I did, uh, that I would have access to any meeting in the Oval Office, any meeting that he had that I, I felt I ought to attend, that I would be the last person in the room that he consulted with on important issues, that uh, I would uh, have the leadership role on issues relating to climate and the environment, and also uh, communications and the um, emerging computer network that later became known as the internet. And um, a few other issue areas as well. It strikes me that it had to be that way, this implicit agreement before you even started working together, that this is the way that we're going to work together. This is going to be the template with which we need to follow for me to be successful working with you and enabling you to serve our country. Yeah, well, the any power that the vice president of the United States has is delegated by the president. And so, yes, that's the way it has to be if it's going to work well, for sure. Al, I'm curious. This is kind of a weird question, but when you look back on your life, what unit of measurement do you use in reflection? Do you look back in decades, in years, kids, times in your life that are defined by where you lived, whether that was in Nashville or the White House, jobs that you had, whether that was the vice presidency or a partner at Kleiner Perkins. When you reflect back, is there a unit of measurement or a lens or framework with which you reflect? Well, there are many. I, I, no, there's not a single unit of measurement, to use your phrase. No. And I primarily look forward, by the way, and I'm, I'm excited about what I'm doing now, and I'm excited about a number of projects that I have in development right now. But as I look backward, uh, almost all of the categorical schemes you referred to are ones that I have used. I look back at the different occupations and jobs I've had, the places I've lived, uh, when my children were born, when my grandchildren were born, uh, all of those things. I don't think that's unusual. I think most of us do that. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I'm really interested in, I continue to go back to just how impressed I am with the way you fight. And there is a quote that you gave at some point that says, no matter how hard the loss, defeat may serve as well as victory to shake the soul and let the glory out. When I heard you say that, it gave me goosebumps. I thought it was unbelievable and so deep. I wonder, would you be willing to just unpack what you mean by that? It strikes me that you continue to take this fight on, chin first, and you so graciously accept hardship and move forward. And I thought this quote just did such a nice job encapsulating the feeling that I had in the way that you represent fighting. Does that make sense? Uh, it does, and thank you very much for putting it that way. I didn't write that. It was a line of poetry from a long time ago, and here's where I first heard it. I first heard it from my father because my father took stands on principle when he was in the United States Senate. I was so proud of him, and as I mentioned earlier, he was one of the very earliest opponents of the Vietnam War. And Tennessee is known as the volunteer state, going back to the War of 1812. It's a conservative state. We have big military bases here. 
that was a courageous thing for him to do. I was so proud of him and his whole service for our country. But after he was defeated by Nixon and Agnew in a despicable campaign, <laughs> I, I, another, another 50 years, I'll get over it. He wrote a book, the title of which was Let the Glory Out, and the title was drawn from that line of poetry. And it naturally occurred to me when I had to uh, sit down and write my concession speech after the Supreme Court decision in December of 2000 ended the presidential contest that year. I do think that moving forward requires one to uh, make peace with what has happened and where you are and look for how to serve in other ways. And that's immediately what I was able to do. At the COP27 There's a quote that you said, which I wanted you to unpack a little bit as well, please. Political will is itself a renewable resource. Could you explain that? Of course. We tend to think of resources as depreciating and we only have so much, a zero-sum game and so forth. And of course, the emergence of these miraculously efficient uh, renewable energy systems solar and wind in particular, which keep going down in cost every single year. It's just really thrilling and gives us the means to solve the climate crisis, along with other things like regenerative agriculture and sustainable forestry and circular economies and so forth. Anyway, I think that sometimes it's worth reminding all of us, myself included, that political will is not a depreciating resource of limited quantities, it can be itself renewed. You see, for example, uh, Greta Thunberg, who started the school strike movement, and young people around the world uh, saw her as an inspiration. She, with her courage, helped to renew the resource of political will around the world that's essential in overcoming the power and wealth of the special interests and legacy fossil fuel polluting poisonous industries that have so much power over decision making in our world. We are in a struggle. The climate crisis is largely a fossil fuel crisis. We still depend on them for 80% of all the world's energy, but we have something better now. (laughs) It's cheaper, cleaner, more jobs, better in every single way. So the real test for humanity right now is whether we can summon sufficient political will to overcome the legacy power of these polluting companies that have burrowed in and embedded themselves in our political systems. And when people look at that task and say, oh my gosh, they've got so many lobbyists and so much money and so many revolving door appointees who just do whatever in the hell they want them to do. How can we possibly win? Well, political will is a renewable resource. And when we see the truth of our circumstances and we understand that all future generations of human beings will be profoundly affected by whether we succeed or fail in this current day and time, then we have the opportunity to renew political will and to amass enough of it to overcome the opposition. And we're doing that. We may not be yet doing it fast enough, but we're gaining momentum and soon we'll be gaining on the crisis itself. Yeah, I think really well said. I wonder, the show is called Grit for a reason, and you strike me as someone who is able to renew his own will, seemingly on demand, and that is unbelievable, and and again, in the process with which you fight. I'm curious, when things don't go your way, when there is a special interest group that's just being a pain in the ass, or a bill that is hurting the cause that you're so passionately trying to progress, how do you renew your will? I wonder, how long does the process take for Al to refill that will? And is there anything that you do, maybe it's a beer or a glass of wine, (laughs) to renew your own will to keep that fight alive internally, to keep that fire burning? 
Well, first of all, I would say that all of us need to take care of ourselves and relax and uh, renew our energies from time to time, of course. But for me, I don't think there is a set routine that I could describe as an answer to your question. I'll go back to what I said earlier about that classic choice between the hard right and the easy wrong. When you practice choosing the hard right, it becomes a habit. And when you learn from experience to recognize when that choice is being served up to you, then you might as well just go ahead and start getting ready to fight for the right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you may make a mistake, you may learn more and adjust uh, your thinking on something, but the main issues involved in the climate crisis have been well known for decades. And it is today what it was years ago, a struggle to overcome the power of polluting industries and interests who can be very devious. And you know, ExxonMobil, for example, just lied like dogs for decades. So they hired great scientists who did great research, laid out a very astonishingly accurate and truthful picture of what was coming if they continued to use the sky as an open sewer. And they took it on board and they say, nope, if we tell the truth, it may cost us some money. So we're gonna lie about it. And we're gonna use the same model that the tobacco companies used. The tobacco companies, you know, decades earlier, when the Surgeon General told everybody smoking cigarettes causes lung cancer and other terrible things too, the tobacco companies hired actors and dressed them up as doctors, pretended to be doctors in front of the camera and falsely told people, I'm a doctor and there's no health problem associated with smoking cigarettes. Just feel free to kill yourself. And 100 million people died unnecessarily. And the fossil fuel industry, some of the most important components of it, consciously decided to adopt industrial scale lying to publics around the world in order to boost their profits. And now we're dealing with the consequences of it. And they bought politicians, they used lobbying campaign contributions, the revolving door, public relations lying on this massive scale that I've mentioned. When you find yourself up against the bell rings and it's round 14 and you've got the same opponent, the specifics of the battle may look a little bit different, but it's basically the same battle. It doesn't take any time at all for me to find my <laughs> grit. <laughs> Hell, I'm ready. <laughs> I promised your team that I would get you out of here at 2.15. I'm incredibly grateful for you doing this. I could do this for hours and, um, and thank you. I really appreciate it. I always end these the same. The first question is usually, because it's business leaders, are you hiring? So I wonder maybe there's a variation to this question, which is if someone wants to join the climate fight that you're on, what would be the lowest hanging fruit way for them to jump on board with you? Go to climatereality.com and sign up. We've got a training coming up uh, in a few weeks. It's free and it'll take some of your time, but you'll learn a lot. You'll get new skills. You'll get detailed, up-to-date information that's the best you can find on the causes of the climate crisis, the solutions to the climate crisis, better skills in communicating and persuading people to be a part of solving the climate crisis. So it's not hard at all. In the business world, a generation does hire people from time to time, not infrequently, and generationim.com. And uh, investors, we have a $4 billion waiting list to, to get into generations uh, portfolios, but we regularly take people off that waiting list. And so that's open to investors as well. Last one, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of? I think of Juven. <laughs> Now, I'll, I'll give you a better, I'll give you, Gore, thank I'll you. give you a better answer. <laughs> uh, I do think of your podcast and congratulations on uh, what you have been able to make it and the following that it has acquired. But uh, grit, 
what do I think of? Well, just, you know, not giving up. Uh, <laughs> grit to me means living with purpose and determination in the face of life's challenges. I've often quoted the great Spanish poet Antonio Machado, who wrote, Traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. We may not know the exact path forward, but we have to always forge ahead and make the path as we go. If you think about it, grit is also exactly what our world desperately needs right now if we're going to win the fight against the climate crisis. There's some people that go straight from denial to despair without pausing on the intermediate step of actually solving the damn thing. And that's what takes grit. And grit is what we need. What an answer. Al, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Juven. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week.